0: Okay, Andrea, Andrea, come on! Oh, oh, oh my God, oh, Andrea! My, I think I actually fell asleep. Yeah, I can
1: tell. I, I definitely. Fe- I had the craziest dream. Andrea, we like actually
0: don't have time. No, for no, this. no! But
1: I, uh, I had this dream that, that 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 we were here. It's just like what's because happening. We right? are here. You walked in and you woke me up, and we started recording the podcast. But then, but then everything went wrong. It's like. It's like, you know, like one of us spilled our beer and the laptop started sparking and it just
0: caught on fire and it was, it was so real. Okay, Andrea, we have been doing this for almost 10 years and I know we did skits in the past and they were like cute and funny, but we are pretty much professional podcasters. So I'm going to need you to like, no, I don't have time for, I don't have time for this anymore anymore. I we just need to get this done. I'm I'm going on a trip next week. This is our only night to do it. I just really really need you to focus, okay? Okay. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Got it. I think I was just yeah yeah. It's fine. Okay. Can we just pretend to be friends? Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good. Energy. Energy. uh, Come on. Just watch your beer, okay? Like use a coaster. Oh no, Andrea! What am I gonna do? I will never spill beer. Andrea, humor me this one time. Okay. Are you gonna start the episode? I always start the episode. I know, but you did
1: in my dream, and I'm just so weirded out. Okay, well, (sighs) maybe I should start it. No! No, that's weirder if you start it. Okay, all right. Should Dante start it? (gasps)
0: Welcome back to the Faculty of Horror podcasting from the horrid halls of academia. I'm Alex West with with. Oh, um, Andrea Subercati. Sorry, sorry. Andrea, just get it. Okay, okay. Together. I'm good. Okay, I'm good. And how? you, Andrea. Did you have a good sabbatical? You're good? Yeah, I'm great. I'm great. Uh, I had a a great sabbatical. Uh,
1: Love our August off, but I definitely um, missed our listeners, missed you, missed doing the Faculty of Horror podcast. I think uh, September episodes always have a special place in my heart because I'm extra excited.
0: Yeah. And it's, you know, we're both like keeners at heart. So for me, September always represents that start to a new academic year. Uh You've got like fresh notebooks, and pens and all kinds of good stuff. And I have to say, by the time we get to August, I'm always kind of excited for it because I'm like, ooh, could you use a month off? Uh-huh. Um, and then I get to the end of August and I'm like, oh, something feels like it's missing and it's yeah. doing the show. But I have to say, we didn't really have August off. No. We got up to a lot of shit. And we're going to tell you about it right now because we have two, I think, pretty sizable announcements. I can say. Yeah. Um, so the first one is... Class of 2022 merch, it's here.
1: It's so good, guys.
0: It's so good. The art this year was done by friend of the show, Laura Hochstad, uh, who is incredible. She has done our artwork for so many different things. And Laura is awesome. So we were so thrilled to work with her and she came up with something really special. It's witchy, it's spooky. I love it. And um, it's going to be available from now till the end of this calendar year. Um, so it's celebrating our 10-year anniversary. And speaking of our
1: 10-year anniversary, anniversary guys we have another announcement to make we are celebrating our 10 year anniversary by doing something that we have never done before done a couple of live shows before you know that we've done some live shows from Salem Horror Fest we kicked off the inaugural Salem Horror Fest we were one of their first podcast guests and we've been going back ever since this december to mark our 10 year anniversary we're going to do a local show in our hometown of toronto i am So excited. I'm excited and I'm nervous. I think we talked about it over the years that, like, in choosing a venue, like, what kind of crowd would we pull? Because we've always had issues getting good, clean statistics and a good idea of where everyone is. I have the impression, it's been a while since I've looked, but I still have the impression that the majority of our listenership is in the U.S., but it is indeed all over the world. But, you know, we're going to do a hometown
0: show and see how it goes. Yeah. So uh, it's Wednesday, December 7th and the show is going to get started at 8 p.m. and it's going to be at the Garrison here in Toronto. Great venue. Um, It's going to be a really, really fun show. We're not going to tell you what we're doing, but it's good. It's going to be really fun. I think you're going to enjoy it. Some might say it is a return to form. Um, And the other thing about this show that you should know, the tickets um, are going to be available as of right now and the tickets are pay what you can. And every single penny, every single Canadian dollar we earn on tickets for this show. We are going to give directly to a wonderful charity and drop-in center called Sisterine. They are an incredibly inclusive drop-in and shelter for women and trans women here in Toronto. They do incredible community work, and we are so excited to not only be able to offer all of you the chance to come see us for whatever you can afford, to throw into the pot and whatever we get out of that pot we are going to send it straight over to Sistering for the holiday season. Yeah,
1: it's really exciting. If you ever needed an excuse to come all the way up to Toronto let this be it. We are going to link all the ticket information in the show notes here so you can make your plans and we'd really love to see you.
0: But now now we are going back to the start of this new century. (laughs) Um, This was a film i certainly saw it in theaters um kind of felt like a big deal at the time sure and it's um yeah we are talking about james wong's final destination Uh, james wong james wong and you know i think this might have
1: been the first time i saw it front to back in preparation for this episode what yeah, I, I feel like this film is pretty ubiquitous. Like, yeah. it, it's, for a film that came out in 2000, for a film on the tail end of the 90s teen horror cycle, I feel like this film was hit. It's been often duplicated, often replicated. It launched an entire giant franchise, and so you know, even if you haven't seen the film, if you know what it's about, you're like, yeah. It I feel like I've probably seen it, but I I had that feeling, but sitting down, this is the first time I sat down to watch it. It is excellent. I can see why it enjoys
0: the longevity that it does, and I'm really eager to talk about it. Yeah, it has a really interesting energy to it. Mm -hmm. Uh, It has a very youthful energy to it with a tension of looming death, which I think we're really going to get into in this episode. But yeah, let's dive into it. Notre voyage commence. Final
1: Destination.
2: weird film the cabin starts to shake right and, and the, the left side blows up and then the whole plane just explodes the plane's gonna explode <laughs> it's not a joke it's not a joke we get thrown off the plane all because brownie has a bad dream <sighs> i saw it the plane it's gonna blow up it's gonna blow up
0: all 287 passengers are feared dead
1: Because of you, I'm still alive.
2: In death, there are no accidents. No coincidences. And no escapes. Did it happen again? Did you see Todd die? What if it was our time? What if we were not meant to get off that plane? what if there is a design then it's not finished by walking off the plane you're cheating death you have to figure out when it's coming back at you what do you got now he knows which one of us is next you have a responsibility to tell me I knew I should have hit on Tammy in the pool that time (sighs) I not let it happen okay (sighs) nobody has control over life and death unless they are taking lives and causing death.
1: with teenager Alex Browning preparing for a high school field trip to Paris with his French class. He begins to feel uneasy about the trip at the airport, and after experiencing a vivid nightmare about the plane exploding shortly after takeoff, he panics, leading to his being removed from the plane along with five other students and a teacher. Back in the airport, they witness the plane taking off and exploding just as Alex described. Shaken, the group returns home, but not before being questioned by a pair of FBI agents who are suspicious of Alex's premonition. In the days following, Alex's best friend who also left the plane before the explosion dies in a freak accident that is ruled a suicide. Alex isn't convinced and he breaks into the coroner's office where he encounters a mysterious mortician who makes ominous remarks about disrupting death's plan. As the rest of the survivors are picked off in similar violent accidents, Alex begins to suspect that they're being stalked by death and realizes that they're all dying in the order that they would have perished on the plane, although that order can be interrupted when someone intervenes. He works to protect the remaining survivors, hampered by the FBI agents who believe Alex is somehow involved in the body count. After a dramatic climax in which Alex is able to save his remaining two friends, the trio celebrate their survival with a trip to Paris, although death appears to have followed them there. Dun, dun, dun! You know, it's such a great, clean, open-and-shut concept.
0: It's a film and a franchise that lives and dies. Uh, by that concept. And, you know, I've seen it very much compared to, like, uh, the game Mousetrap. Brought to life. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a kind of gamified element to death.
1: Sure. And when it comes to horror franchises and that wash, rinse, repeat, like I think we talked about this at length when we talked about Saw, about how, like, this gives us a formula that works. This is a film that works and it has a concept and a philosophy that works that you can just repeat. And Saw kind of went off the rails, but. From what I've seen of the Final Destination sequels, and by that I mean I've seen a smattering of them over the years, I can't even remember which one was which, but that basic premise lends itself so nicely to just teenagers being offed by dramatic, elaborate means, and it just works so well.
0: Yeah, um, I, of course, rewatched the original film for prep for this episode, and then over the next week, I watched all of the sequels. All of them? Dude, that's like five films, two comic books, and nine novels. Okay. Well, I didn't do the comic books or the novels. <laughs> um, but I know. I, I watched them all. Um, the first is my favorite because the characters feel the most like people. Okay. Um, I think they're also the better actors. For sure. As part of this franchise. Strong teen cast
1: of, like, you know, people who were appearing in 90s horror films.
0: Yeah.
1: And, it, and still, so it
0: feels a bit more grounded sure. and I think once you kind of give up the ghost of like, okay, well, the ending is always someone's going to die mm-hmm. uh, or if not all of them are going to die, um, the tension kind of evaporates. Okay. So I felt it was a bit diminishing returns with the sequels in terms of my level of investment in them. Okay. Um, but there's still like great kills in all of them. It's just a showcase for kills yeah, at this point. But I, I also wonder about like how much does a good kill Kill mean if you're not invested in the characters who it's happening mm-hmm. to. Mm-hmm. Like there's an appreciation for the technicality and the imagination and the creativity that can go into it. But if I don't really care about the characters and I'm just waiting for them to die, I find I get a little bored oh, I a little i mean a lot
1: it becomes like brain candy right yeah. like it becomes a popcorn film that's just kind of like i just want to see obnoxious teenagers picked off and and it, i did have something in my notes about the rube goldberg machine have you heard about this i've heard of it but i'm unclear as to what it is okay so the rube goldberg machine is uh, the american version of the heath robinson contraption which is like the british counterpart and these are basically a pair of cartoonists whose work featured Really elaborate contraptions that were designed to perform a very specific, simple task by way of a very convoluted method. And so, like, the biggest example of that is do you remember the intro sequence of Pee Wee's Big Adventure? Vaguely. Where he had this crazy mechanical contraption that made his breakfast. Yes. And a little ball would go down and that would crack the egg and it would fall into this and it would this and this and this and, this and that, that. Like, way more elaborate than just frying up an egg and putting on your slippers and whatever the fuck else he does. But like, that's what this franchise has become, is a showcase of these contraptions uh, becoming kills and the red herrings we've come to expect.
0: Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I think we're probably less, as the franchise goes on, for me, it's less investment in the characters themselves and more in trying to you know, go into quote-unquote death's design.
1: That's right. It's trying to out-kill and out-maneuver and out-innovate the precursor but from what i understand with this franchise is like a lot of them really stick with you i can't remember which final destination had that kill that also echoes in the descent where they're driving behind a, a truck that has all these logs that's uh, the second one that's that the comes the second up one all the time i see that one all the time i see memes all the time like final destination is embedded in horror lore
0: it's actually a great question to ask people um like horror people even just you know film people um, Um, like if you say final destination, what is the kill you think of? Uh
1: I feel like there's one involving gymnastics
0: that really got to me. That's the fifth one?
1: Ooh. Oh, God, I, God. I'm getting the heebie-jeebies yeah. just thinking about
0: it because they are elaborate and they are fucking brutal. I What's mean, your favorite? It's going to make me sound like a purist, but the ones I come back to the most are the opening sequence on the plane. Mm-hmm. Every single time I am taking off or landing in a plane, you think of it? it goes through my head. Oh, shit. And I'm going on a plane next week, so just know next Tuesday, I will be thinking about that. Um, and then... And as well the one that's kind of popped into my head more recently it's also from the first film and it's probably because i'm living on my own that i think careful of, careful you almost spilled your beer just be extra careful okay this okay, is okay, expensive okay, equipment okay. And you know it's fine like oh alex be careful i don't these know. long limbs can i finish my point uh-huh so, the other death that gets me is probably because um I live alone is also from this film. It's Todd's death, um, who dies. He's the first death after the accident in the bathroom. Oh,
1: my God.
0: And I'm always like, I'm not worried about my cats eating me. In fact, I hope that's how you all bury me or Mm -hmm. not bury me. You just let my cats eat me. Mm -hmm. You know, I'd rather that than anything else. That's a plan. Thank you. Um, But it's that like, oh God, if I'm alone and I slip on the wrong thing or if I do something or like I, it kind of has that anxious feeling about it. It has that weird plausibility. Yeah. And I feel like the
1: movie really took pains to be like, there's soap on the floor, which is why he can't get his footing. There's this, there's that. His dad is doing this, so he can't hear.
0: So well done. And especially because that's the first one after the accident, they really take their time with it to Mm -hmm. just kind of show all the little, like, pulleys that death is working to make it happen. Mm -hmm. And you also see that soap retreat. You also have
1: a sense that this isn't a freak accident. There's something paranormal at work here.
0: (laughs) i'm sorry i'm sorry Alex, i told you i literally just said to okay, watch me. it just it's fine it's not anywhere near the computer you
1: know, i am mopping it up equally upset about the wasted beer if i'm honest i need to mop
0: it up be careful okay i'm just um uh, I, I got all i got almost all of it all it's right, fine okay. Just, okay be more careful uh, you be more careful So I do have a whole section in my book about 90s teen horror where I talk about Final Destination and um, a few other films that came out in 2000 as a kind of bridge to the new millennium. And in that chapter, I identify Final Destination as such an interesting case because it shows the movement between, you know, the 90s teen horror, the jokey self-referential horror film into torture porn. I think there are very clear seeds of torture porn in Final Destination, and it delves even more into that within the sequels. But I think for our purposes today, I really want to focus on the year it came out and a couple dates that surround it. So Final Destination was released March 17th, 2000. The Columbine shootings happened on April 20th, 1999. And of course, September 11th happened in 2001. This film came out smack in between two things that completely reshaped my world as a teen. So in the year 2000, when this film came out, it was the spring, so I would have been 14. Mm-hmm. But um, the Columbine shootings were obviously not the first or the last school shootings, but it had an incredible cultural impact. It was not only a tragedy, but a moment that both American political parties seized upon. The right felt galvanized against a culture they didn't agree with, from Marilyn Manson angry music to violent video games and movies. They held those up as the sacrificial lambs that society is wrong, the kids aren't all right. And this is why And this is the outcome. There was so much fear mongering at the time. Yeah, it was like the satanic panic of the odds. Exactly. And then, you know, some of the political left were also taking that tact as well. It's not to say they weren't. But some of the maybe more sensible, progressive, left-leaning politicians said, you know what? Sure, let's be careful about the content we consume, but why don't we just enact stricter gun laws? Which, unfortunately, is a conversation we are still having to have today. But my constitutional rights. Andrea, you're Canadian. Oh, yeah. That's why we have all these guns. I just want to shoot things. I know. And... 9-11 was another tragedy. It was an attack on U.S. soil carried out by an extremist group. It profoundly changed western society on um, you know again it was a divide between the two political parties but this time but this time it was a bit more muddled the right and some to a lot of the left politicians saw it as an opportunity to go to war especially against countries with access to oil others saw it as america's deeply questionable foreign policies and actions being revisited upon them so In between these events, there was Final Destination, where a group of teens are scared into a sort of stasis, afraid to leave their country and terrified to remain in their homes. Mm. There was no right way to be a kid at this time, is what I kind of remember it as. Now, Columbine vilified a culture that was marketed to youth and disenfranchised youth as an audience is nothing new. We're still doing it. We're still talking about it. They've done it before. And 9-11 reminded everyone of our tenuous relationship across borders. Mm -hmm. I say that as a Canadian and it just reminded everyone that we are not unimpeachable. There are things that we have done. There are policies that were enacted in our name that are incredibly problematic and have hurt people and countries and communities. And, you know, it's what horror is. It is the the return of the repressed.
1: That's right. And we talk a lot about how traumatic things happening in the world manifest in Western horror, but nine eleven was was an attack that nobody saw coming and it was kind of in a novel way that hadn't really happened before. And it's a plane exploding. This was a very, very touchy spot at the time. I remember horror movies that didn't even have anything to do with teenage culture, like Session 9, were shelved and were affected by 9-11 and when it happened. And so, so yeah, it was definitely a very big deal to have an exploding
0: plane earlier that year and have teenage kids being like, "Oh, that could have been me. Yikes." And I think, you know, there was even another Devin Sawall movie from the 90s, uh Idle Hands, which also had to get shelved because of Columbine. Did it. Or it, like it got like shuffled around the release and then it got kind of buried a uh-huh. bit. Yeah. It's also not a great movie, so
1: didn't age well. No. So my limited understanding of the sequels that came after this is that the character that tony todd plays in this first film he's just kind of a coroner it's a little bit ominous he's a little bit creepy he's doing his work but he's the one who kind of introduces the idea that death is following you yeah he's
0: kind of like a coroner ex machina right but in subsequent
1: movies from what i understand he becomes a more prominent figure as the representation of death
0: I mean it's hard because it's tony todd who is like as he is want to do and as he should do in every film I believe. Uh, He's, like, kind of chewing the scenery. He's Uh having a lot of fun with it. So that character makes a couple other appearances throughout the franchise as, like, a coroner. Uh, The third one has the opening with the roller coaster. Uh So he's just the voice that's announcing, like, oh, beware of the roller coaster. It's scary. And then he's not in the fourth one at all, I believe. And then he kind of makes a reappearance in the fifth one. Okay.
1: So I wanted to talk a little bit about the idea of death being personified as a figure Um, it's a specter that looms throughout this movie it's a specter that you know is personified insofar as it has a plan it has an order it's executing people one at a time whether or not it's a physical being it is a force to be reckoned with and the personification of death often occurs in the form of the grim reaper for example like often depicted as a robed skeleton with a scythe to harvest souls and in christianity death appears in Revelation as one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, along with famine, war, and conquest, which, you know, you can see by those four that it's a very uh, tied to the times, so to speak. Right. That these That these were the vehicles that death traveled upon at the time. Now, in Greek mythos, death is personified as Thanatos, son of the night and twin brother of sleep, who would come to claim souls which were carried to the world of the dead across the river Styx. And then, of course, there's the psychopomp, which is a figure that merely guides souls to the afterlife without having any control of who dies or when Actually, I think we've talked about this in the past but that was the theme that guided my tattoo sleeve when I first got my first tattoo sleeve
0: oh, was that that's why you got your yeah
1: like I I wanted all psychopomps I thought that it was it was a really interesting visual depiction of the line between life and death is yeah. is the psychopomp that is a non-judgmental figure that just you know death isn't good death isn't bad, but death is inevitable. And it's something that we have to confront and understand. And that's such a key example of how people tend to overthink their first tattoos before afterwards. They're like, I like giraffes. I think I want a giraffe. <laughs> but uh, most prominent on my sleeve, I've got uh, I've got an Anubis guy there. I've got a representation of the river Styx. I've got like a, a candle that's lit and a candle that's been snuffed. But I've also got the Santa Muerte. Yeah. And in Mexican culture, Santa Muerte is a feminized version. Version of the grim reaper who is considered a deity and is associated with healing and safe delivery to the afterlife by those who revere her. So more than a creature to be feared, she's a creature who offers protection. And indeed, in recent days, uh, worship of Santa Muerte, it used to be practiced in secret because the, the Vatican has a denounced Santa Muerte. Uh, she's not a recognized saint within the Catholic Church. And so to worship her was considered idolatry by the church and indeed by the government, because we know that church and state are problematically Bedfellows? interlinked. But now Nowadays, her subversive nature sees her associated with the oppressed. And the dispossessed, and making her especially popular among Mexican American migrants and Mexican LGBTQ plus communities. And she approves of those rejected by the church and offers protection to those who face the risk of death just by way of their lifestyle Mm -hmm. and and by their way of life. And uh, I found a great article on Santa Muerte's association with the disenfranchised from the Hemispheric Institute that I'll link to in the show notes, which explains why the Santa Muerte is at odds with the church because she's fundamentally a non-judgmental figure of death who is worshipped rather than feared and of course the church preferred the idea of conserving life at any cost why is that andrew well- That's because they believe that Christ defeated death, and so death should not be canonized. But in Final Destination, we've got Tony Todd, who plays the mortician, William Bloodsworth. Here, he might just be a creepy guy spouting the mythology that he learned in funerary school, but, like, is he death or is he death's messenger? He seems to just kind of be a device to provide some understanding. But, you know, at the same time, there's so much material in popular culture about the idea that death can be bargained with or at least delayed in his task. Like, I always think of Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. That movie made such a fucking impact on me. I was the Grim Reaper for Halloween after seeing it as a kid at the drive-in. I was obsessed. But horror fans might be more familiar with Ingmar Bergman's The Seventh Seal, in which a medieval knight, played by Max von Sydow plays chess with death to keep him busy. So the idea that death is a thing, it's a person, it's a being, it has a plan. Yeah. And if it has gonna, a job. It has a job to do, and that is what we're up against more so than, you know, a slippery bathtub or a live wire.
0: I think it's very scary to think that certain things are out of our control absolutely no i got it i got it i got it nope nope no, no, there's no sparks there was no sparks it's fine i just put it out i just don't you right i just put it out look it's fine look i just moved the curtains no, it's
1: andrea i don't even care about the computer it's just one of us could have gotten hurt go. oh my god it's just exactly like this nightmare that i have
0: andrea just need to get through this and then we don't have to see or talk to each other for another month just be okay. careful. I'm going to get you a
1: sippy cup for your beer.
0: Okay. Um so going back to the idea that we're not in control, there's an interesting thing in this film about God. I feel like it's about God
1: because it's about the idea that there's a theological metaphysical plan for us all, even though God is never mentioned. It's always well, like positioned within
0: superstition. God is kind of mentioned within the film. So, I would like to take us back from all the stuff we're talking about right now back to the specific year of 1927, and that is when two very influential books came out. Charles Richet's Our Sixth Sense and J.W. Dunn's An Experiment with Time. We're only going to spend a little bit of time on Richet's book because Charles Richet was a racist who notably contributed publicly to the theory of eugenics. So he was a shitty dude. Fuck you, Charles. Um, but I thought it was just interesting because these two theories that came up in my research both came out in the same year. Um, so just briefly for Richet, the sixth sense was an umbrella term for telepathy, premonition, prediction, etc. It's a theory that this sense could pick up vibrations of reality, giving the sensor the ability to perceive the future, if not change it. And it kind of did away with like spirits and God and all of that kind of stuff. And then for J.W. Dunn, his book, An Experiment with Time, is a fascinating piece to me. Now, Dunn was a soldier. He was also a an aeronautical engineer as well as a philosopher, and so he was a British Irish philosopher. And this book became something of a hit in its time. The book was also featured, and this is how I came to know about it in Gaspar Noé's *Irreversible*. Uh-huh. It is the book that Monica Bellucci's character Alex hey, names. Alex. Names. Lots of Alex's in this episode. Alexi. Um. It's the book that she is reading at the end of the film, which is the beginning of her narrative because the whole film is told in reverse. And the book has two main theories, precognitivism and serialism. Precognitivism came from several dreams that Dunn had himself, which foretold future elements. They were mundane things, they were deaths and accidents, as well as a dream of a plane that could operate without someone steering it. So precognitivism and in conversations with other people, Dunn realized that this was a much more common occurrence than it was an uncommon occurrence senses of deja vu, I've had dreams that I feel like have come true or that have preceded some kind of event. Mm-hmm. So Dunn was concerned that by focusing on the present and the near future, we were missing signs and intuitions that the past and present could provide. So these instincts and these ideas and signs were filtering into our dreams. That's the way they could figure how to tell us things. And Dunn's theory of serialism was developed, as many believe, to protect his theories from accusations of occult and dark thoughts and evilness at the time. Uh, So he utilized the emerging quantum theory as well as Einstein's theories to develop this serialism, which is the idea that while we're awake, we are experiencing time chronologically. However, there are also higher levels of time. There are multiple dimensions through which experience happens. When we dream, we are able to start to access these different levels of time and these different dimensions of time that start to clue us into things that are coming that may affect us or maybe bigger ideas. This was, of course, never scientifically accepted, but this idea had a huge influence in literary and philosophical circles. Now, when we talk about final destination of God, when I watch the film, there's always one brief sequence that sticks in my head as like a fucking bellwether in this film. Is at the very beginning of the film, they're boarding the plane and Todd's brother George uh-huh. says, um, you know, everyone's kind of nervous and he's like, well, look, there's a baby on the plane. Only a fucked up God would Only take a this plane. Up God would take and then this they plane. pass um, a man with a handicap uh-huh. and then he says, a really fucked up God. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Now, both Richet and and done kind of do away with the notion of God in their theories. And I think they're so interesting to apply to final destination because I think they kind of hit on my sense of it at the turn of the 20th century, and we were beginning to start to understand that we could live without God, mm-hmm. that we could live without this Christian identity. That we could explain phenomena. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, this was the beginning of there is no God because the plane goes down. It's no God, just vibration or vibes. (laughs) No God, just vibes. (laughs) Hashtag. And I think it's really interesting when I think about myself as a teenager. And you have to remember the age of most of these characters and even the teacher, she's relatively young. Mm -hmm. Um, There is such drama and you're in the moment so much and there is anxiety about your near future. But I think few teens are actively thinking about death. And I think that's why, you know, when you see a lot of teen activists who have survived school shootings, they are forever changed and they become really strong voices in that world of lobbying for gun control and things like that because they have faced something that is supposed to be unimaginable at that age. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think by Alex kind of tapping into that higher level of time it gives him time but it also forces him into a stasis because he becomes so paranoid and you see it later on in the film when he's like you know hold out in the like cottage and he's just paranoid about everything around him mm-hmm. um i think there is a fear that this film really taps into that yes there is a plan but it's not necessarily for a higher purpose mm-hmm. there's no god narrative in this film It's to follow a prescribed design by a force without narrative. It is more random and chaotic than we would like to believe. And when you're at that age of a teen about to, you know, enter into the world and start making choices for yourself, it's hard to engage with that narrative. The idea of like, you know, we are prescribed something. It's like, no, I want to go forward. I want to break barriers and I want to change the world. And these are teens who are beginning to understand, no, I'm just part of a larger plan.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. I think, you know, we've talked at length about the construction. Of adolescence, and how it's like this weird liminal period where basically you're living to prepare for what comes next. You know, you're not making money yet. You're not contributing to the household, really. You're not fully formed, but you're in those early stages. And so there's a lot of pressure to think about the future. Think about the future. Don't fuck up your future by being a teenager and making teenage mistakes. And yeah, I think that factors into everything that was going on at the time. And and the theories that you're talking about sound very, you know, positivistic to me. Like, you know, yes, dreams offer the answers that God can't offer. That's kind of what got me thinking about how predestination figures into Mm -hmm. this film. Now, predestination is the belief that God has already decided everything that happens on earth, including when and how we will die. And in Christian theology, God has a plan, but he's given humanity free will within certain limits of that plan. And the nature of those limitations have been the subject of theology and philosophy. Since pre-Christian times, it's indeed been responsible for certain sects to break off from Christianity like uh, like Protestantism, based on the various reformations of the idea that best suited their purposes at the time. Like the Lutherans, for example, believed that everyone was predestined to heaven unless they sin, while the Calvinists believed that some were already destined for damnation where others were destined to be saved. Now, that's the really theological bent to this subject, but in Final Destination, I felt like there were those remarks about God, and I kind of flagged those, but I also flagged the funeral. The funeral, when we're talking about it, was their time and God has a plan. And that is something that we actually see even today in our largely secular culture as a source of comfort. It's supposed to be comforting the idea that this is part of a clockwork machinery. And that this was just their time and their their time was up. And on the one hand, it feels kind of um, not condescending, but minimizing mm-hmm. a, a, of a person's potential. Like I've always kind of questioned does that actually feel comforting? Like the idea of being a cog in a machine, but, but at the same time, there's really well, not
0: much you can I say. I it's designed to be comforting is it was their plan. It was the plan for them, mm-hmm. but you're still here. You're still here. So you're, you, your it's, story it's, goes still on. But it's so weird because it minimizes people. Yeah. People who are loved, who were friends, who were family members, and it minimizes their life. And that always freaks me out when I you know, hear the thoughts and prayers.
1: Yeah, and that's, it's prevalent. Uh, my partner has a younger brother who passed well before his time, and, you know, their family is really interested in mediums and connecting with this person on the other side, and I have a lot of mixed feelings about the value of these belief systems, and I'm I'm, I'm, I'm frankly critical about giving your money to somebody who's yeah. like, oh, yeah, 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 it's listening, but if it serves them, then it's money well served. It's money you're spending... Like, It's a form of therapy, perhaps." But anyway, getting back to Final Destination, Final Destination deals in a more secular form of determinism, which deals in a simpler, more scientific idea of cause and effect. And this is kind of like a positivist, enlightenment-style thinking along the lines of the theorists you just talked about. It's almost as if life and death are part of this cosmic machine, and if one fails to perform its task, another one compensates to restore order, which is what brought me to the concept of the Risk Society. And I'll drop a link in the show notes. Uh, It's a great summary of a chapter from a book called Modernity and Self-Identity, which was published in 1991 by Anthony Giddens. Uh, There's also a German sociologist named Ulrich Beck, who also published a book on Risk Society that uh, that I can recommend. And it's interesting because they describe how in the modern context, we're a lot less superstitious because science has given us so many theories and explanations about the universe. We have vaccines, we have pesticides, medicine, we have the technology to preserve food, etc. And as a result, the modern person feels a lot more control over their future. But That's not to say that the modern context isn't without new risks, and not only are they more dangerous on a global scale, we haven't eradicated war, for example, we're destroying the fucking environment. These dangers... Are things that humanity has actually caused. Mm-hmm. So if you think about, you know, our control over the universe, it's like, oh, this was a disaster. This was an act of God. We can't say that about 9-11. We can't say that about Columbine. These are processes and systems that humanity has put in place that is not only not serving us, but is actively destroying us and introducing risk into our lives and into a population that really shouldn't be experiencing risk. No. Young people going to fucking high school people taking a flight in America anyway Giddens argues, and he was arguing again in 1991, that while living in the world isn't riskier than it once was, we have a heightened awareness of this risk in our everyday lives and have hence developed a sense of risk consciousness in which we think about the future differently. And he talks about how we've lost faith in experts and in leaders to guide humanity, and we perceive risk just about everywhere. When we buy something at the store, we're like, oh, is is this full of additives? Is the CEO of this company a raging racist? Am I allowed to like this? Am I allowed? Like all of that is running in the background and that takes up emotional and mental bandwidth on us. And that's something that we have to grapple with as a society. Anyway, Giddens, he's still alive, but he hasn't (laughs) published anything since 2007 or so. So I can just imagine. I can just imagine how his head is spinning at modern developments like the Trump administration's flat-out distortions of reality and the denial of science when it comes to COVID-19. I wasn't able to find like a lot of kind of newfangled COVID era interpretations of risk society, but when you think about it, every single
0: social interaction we enter with now, it's, it's bizarre. Like uh, we're just wrapping up in Toronto uh tip 2022 and after 2 years of a hybrid version, they're like, "We're back, baby." It's like the Tom Cruise meme, like, movies are back. Yeah. And I know several people have caught COVID from the festival. I caught COVID at Fantasia. And that was
1: a risk. Like, going in, I knew it might happen. But then, of course, you don't understand the consequences until you experience them. And now I'm tremendously gun-shy. I have been about and I feel like we've talked at length on this podcast and indeed I've always been writing my editorials on the magazine that this stuff is taking up emotional bandwidth in our brains and if we're miserable and if we're stressed and if we're like, don't even get me started on like, Suicide rates and and stuff like that going on. It, it, we are in crisis. We are experiencing trauma right now on a tremendous scale because risk society is just ramped up to eleven. And indeed, in my research, both Giddens and Beck were just kind of like, it isn't necessarily a bad thing because we're all experiencing it together, and it can actually be a source of solidarity. And yeah, like you're making a face, I'm making a face. COVID-19 is fucking laughing in our faces because it managed to not only traumatize us all collectively, but to fragment us individually such that we feel like we have to experience this on a really micro scale. It's so, so fucked. Anyway, getting back to Final Destination, the specter of death is looming in a literal sense, but the film shows us, and I thought it was really sophisticated in how it showed us how... The different characters are reacting to living in a risk society in very believable ways. We've got Carter, who's reacting in anger and denial. I fucking love his, like, I'm never going to die. I'm never going to die. I'm in control. I'm in control. He says that so many times. He is walking toxic masculinity. And I don't know if they named him Carter early in the script or later in the script, But when he's in the car and everyone's like, Carter, the car, Carter, get out of the car, the car, Carter, Carter, car, car, car. It's like a theater (laughs) warm up. Carter in the car, Carter in the car. It was devastating. And I was was breaking my brain. But he's clearly insecure and he's clearly projecting a sense of control over that, which he has no control over. He's a dick and he's a bully because of all this. We've got Ms. Luton, who is plagued by guilt and she blames herself for a very reasonable decision. Decision that wound up getting another teacher killed instead of her and she tries to run well, from that teacher yeah expendable i agree but and then there's terry and billy they don't do much philosophical heavy lifting in the film although terry does manage a good line about how they should simply appreciate their good fortune and move on with their lives which i loved how she delivered such a pithy human emotional line right before And you almost feel like the bus
0: punctuates that point. I remember that in theaters. Like and everyone went <gasps> and then laughed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because there's such a weird release when it happens. Yeah,
1: it's almost like yeah, right, bitch. You just said something possibly constructive, and it just punctuates it with that, which is great.
0: I do actually just want to touch on Billy for one moment because he's a very minor character, relatively speaking, within this film He's played by Sean William Scott, and it you kind of see versions of this character in all the other sequels. But I think getting Sean William Scott, who I actually think is a pretty decent actor. Oh, I love him. He won me. Over in Goon. Did you oh, ever see that? I did. I think he's a fantastic actor. And it's this kind of like silly goofball, something, something guy, but he has such presence and pathos within it. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's why, like, um, the original stands out to me against the rest because you actually feel like this is a human being. Yeah. Let's talk about Clear River. Let's talk about her name isn't Claire. It's not Claire. But Clear. Clear. I only learned that when I was writing my book and went to just check imdb and wikipedia and had my mind blown like today i learned i would have thought it was claire i have gotten in the habit of watching all my whoa whoa, whoa. What? what the hell was that where it was, sorry 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 i just thought something dude really it just looked like somebody behind you <sighs> andrea you got me freaked out can you just please talk about trying to hold it together just like clear rivers exactly the child of wealthy fucking hippies you know i have a feeling that she maybe had a bigger role that was chopped up like there was a uh not as like a bomb took a bomb while a sex scene but a scene where her and alex like get it on
1: okay so i heard that there was an alternate ending of this movie floating around where alex dies but claire has his baby ew gross
0: and she names it alex the second oh oh i don't like that no i don't like that at all but then yeah i always thought like when i learned about that it was interesting because they go from being like oh we didn't really know each other in high school and now we've got this weird bond to being like i fucking love you do they ever even kiss because yeah i feel like they went from we never even talked in to baby 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 yeah exactly and that's what there there was a sex scene that was cut out and then i mean what what a great like come on being like i made this creepy sculpture of you that sculpture fucking sucks <laughs> that was the late 90s i objectively declare that it's to be
1: garbage yeah. oh god she's not quite goth but she's supposed to be this like weird weirdo and i don't know then she got blonde hair at the end and then so. she got blonde hair at the end and then she like martyrs herself and, and all this fucking shit but like i never got a clear sense of- <laughs> damn it I leave never it got a- leave it all in i never got a clear river's sense <laughs> of how her backstory of like being the child of divorce connects with her immediate believing of Alex like that was the biggest stretch in the movie and like it didn't bother me listen some of us are always looking for a father figure some of us are looking for a half decent female character in some of these fucking bullshit movies and it's just Claire Rivers is not one of them I'm just gonna say those are some sad
0: late 90s bangs yeah yeah no anyway oh ow 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 what happened I something just sparked something just no okay that's fine was that the computer no it's it's fine don't worry about it just okay we're almost done we're almost done okay 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 so what i would like to talk about now is a theory i have been developing about final destination and that is that final destination is abject horror Okay, this is your theory. This is my theory. I was searching around and I couldn't really see anyone else talking about this, so maybe this is a FAC exclusive. (laughs) <laughs> let's let's game this out. Let's uh, see
1: how it plays. But remind me what abject horror is because sure. I know we've covered it but it
0: has a lot of it has a lot of permutations yeah. it has a lot of applications. But just for some generalized theory, the abject was popularized in a modern horror context by Julia Kristeva. Abjection in Kristeva's horror context has two general applications there is the physical, something that is gross, that depicts something hidden from society to keep us all going. That is corpses, waste, menstrual blood, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. By ignoring these very everyday occurrences due to a variety of factors, they become horrifying. These very everyday things become horrifying. That's why we have blue liquid in pad commercials. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Anything that's icky and behind that curtain. Yeah. Yeah. And then secondarily, it also has to do with communities or groups who are shunned because they are perceived to not fit in. So I had this idea about Final Destination and the Abject, and so I got someone to qualify this, and that is a friend of the show, Emily Sanders. Uh, Andrea, you may remember her. We met her when we last went to Queen's University, which I think was in February 2020. I remember, Emily. Um, and she was great, and she's doing her PhD in theories of the abject, and Canadian genre horror cinema. And uh, we were kind of hanging out with her for a few days, and she was fantastic. And she had to drive us back to the GO train. Well, it was like an hour long drive. And I remember, Andrea, you said to me before we got in the car, you were like, I'm just going to fall asleep. Mm-hmm. Epilepsy, was, is yeah. the technical term. I remember we kind of sat down, we were driving to the GO train, and uh, we, were, we were chatting. And then I looked back, and you had totally like conked out. You were like, <laughs> head back, like, <laughs> ah. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to use this time to my advantage. And I always had problems like fully understanding the abject because it's such a big nebulous term in some ways. So I actually utilized that time to talk to Emily, who very kindly like really helped break down the abject for me. And I think one of the things that really stuck with me that she was saying to me is that the abject can be very present in the everyday. Like we all ignore the fact that we are all going to die. Mm-hmm. The great truths in life. So we get out of bed and we do all the shit we have to do that day. So I kind of, you know, put together a couple sentences about this theory and I DM'd her and I was like, hey, does this track? Mm -hmm. And by Instagram direct message, she was like, yeah, I think that makes sense. So this is a PhD student qualified theory. So in Final Destination, we are exposed to the abject horror of death. The opening sequence provides an interesting duality. We experience a plane crashing from those inside and witness the horror of it. Once Alex and the others are off the plane, we then experience the plane exploding from a distance. The horror is more deeply felt because we have been inside it the rest of the tragedy is sanitized down to the memorial service it becomes a tragedy rather than horror and to break down the difference between horror and tragedy in my mind the horror scares people while tragedy has a kind of somber emotional resonance Mm -hmm. they can be intertwined but in final destination i think we get a really interesting distinction between the two as different characters have different experiences of it Alex has experienced abject horror. He's experienced death and what is at hand, what is about to be felt, whereas everyone else is kind of taking his word for it to varying degrees. Then I wanted to enter into this discussion, the French theorist Guy Debord's The Society of the Spectacle. And Debord is a Marxist theorist, and this book deals in a series of short theses uh, that our lives and experiences have been replaced by spectacle, representations of lived experiences. So to quote Debord, in societies where modern conditions of production prevail, life is presented as an immense accumulation of spectacles. Everything that was directly lived has receded into a representation. In Debord's mind, it is a means of unification of experience, not a collection of images. It is rather a, quote, social relation between people that is mediated by images. And I think we can kind Kind of look, as I was mentioning earlier about 9 11, what was experienced by those people on those planes is a horror I can't even begin to imagine. Mm-hmm. Yet we have this collective. Tragic experience of it. And I think to preserve a unification of spectacle, Alex's precognition is marked as abject horror. It is not only through the death sequences, but through the way Alex is treated after the initial incident, does he also become abject. So we have experienced seeing his own death and the death of everyone around him, but then he becomes an outcast. Like Clear, I think even says at one point, like he's not a witch.
1: Mm-hmm. Which like, oh, right. <laughs> but like, not only was he there, not only did he narrowly escape it, he had some precognition that, that sets him as a weirdo. So he's an yeah. object on a couple of levels.
0: and And he like becomes almost inert. Yeah. After this premonition, he he's finding it harder and harder to function within society because he knows something is around the corner, that something is coming for him and his friends and the people he cares about. So he's becoming more and more afraid of the world around him and because of the, his own connection to the tragedy and he was able to bring people off the plane then he becomes an outcast
2: mm-hmm.
0: so that is my theory of final destination in the abject oh i like it
1: Thanks. Because I'm interested in Alex. I was interested in how the research I was doing was all about how Alex is such an everyday teen. Kudos to Devin Sawa for projecting. He's such an everyday teen. He's just a normal teen. And I'm like, dude, he had a premonition. I just had a dream that was so convincing that it's weirded me out. But he just wanted some attention. Well. And maybe he wanted some attention. Like he was excited for this trip, and he was even a little bit superstitious. There's that scene about him and the tag on his luggage. Yeah.
0: Alex. Todd and George's dad just called. He's picking you up at three thirty tomorrow, and the bus leaves the high school for the airport around five.
2: How's my suitcase working out for you? Oh, mama, mama, you gotta leave that on. Yeah, it's like you know. I tell you me, the last flight without the plane crashing or anything, so I figured. It's got to be on the bag, or at least with the bag. For luck.
1: Where would you get a nutball idea like that? I'm still here. (laughs) And yet... I can't imagine having such a strong faith in a dream that I would make such a scene on a plane such that I would get thrown off. And and, and he stuck to his guns, and, and I respect him for it. But at the same time, I'm like, is this everyday teen behavior? Which led me to a question that I wanted to pose to you as a literary guy is that, is Alex a Christ-like figure? Cause all the articles I read on Final Destination, he's so normal, and yet he's having these prophecies, and he's following them so passionately, and he kind of... Fits the bill in a couple of respects manifesting divine qualities check displaying kindness and forgiveness above and beyond the call of duty check fighting for justice and then the sacrifice and the martyrdom aspect and even indeed the resurrection mm. I, i'm aware that there was an alternate ending where he dies and clear has his baby and names it alex browning the second which holy fuck am i ever glad she should have named it clear
0: too, clearer <laughs> <laughs> clarification <laughs> But anyway, Alex is far
1: from an average teen, and even if he was kind of a nerd and a dork to begin with, what nerd and dork has such faith in their own instincts to follow like that?
0: It's a great point, and it's not one I'd consider, but I think there is a lot of traction there. You know, if I think of Christ-like figures in, in media and literature and everything else, there is this... Propensity towards normalcy. And I think there is, you know, that Jesus was just a normal dude, dude and around. Mm-hmm, he mm-hmm. happened to be the son of God. And so maybe Alex is like the 21st century son of vibes. <laughs> <laughs>
1: love that but like i feel like overall this points to final destination as being a film that deals in highly theological tropes but secularizes it
0: modernizes it and makes it fucking fun it does and i really think this film is about the absence of god and Uh how we still search for figures to lead us
1: and meaning and a plan like i think there's something very very human in in predestination and the the idea that things were meant to happen but there's also a scary flip side which is what this movie explores
0: oh absolutely and like i think there's a real human reaction to tony todd telling you something like i told the story on the podcast before when i met tony todd at a room party and he was like alex that's my son's name let's do a shot and i was like of course tony todd we're gonna do a shot together let's do a fucking shot Uh, who am i (laughs) what'd
1: think jameson fuck your favorite
0: no it's not
1: Uh, not at all no
0: but i did a show with tony todd so yeah. Final Destination started as an idea for an episode of The X Files. I read that. Yeah. Because James Wong and Glenn Morgan, who are part of the creative team um, behind the film, were also part of the creative team behind The X Files. Mm. And so by lowering the age of it to teenagers, they were like, oh, we've got a film on their hands. And New Line was looking for an entryway into the big teen horror genre that had emerged at that time. So this was a really great way in for them. And, you know, if you look up Final Destination franchise or Final Destination history or anything like that, there's still a lot of love for this franchise out there, so much so that they are in uh, I've read versions of pre-production production on a new
1: sequel. Yeah, yeah, I saw that too. I saw that um, the producers were looking at, uh, like, again, This it reminded me, again, of, of Risk Society and about how the role of the paramedic and the EMT, like, like people who face death every day and their relationship to the abject. Um, that is supposedly the impetus to the new storyline, screenwriters have announced. And, and it's the screenwriters of Ready or Not in the new screen film. That's right, which, which points to a, a cheekiness and a tongue-in-cheek makes, sense makes of excited. humor. I love yeah. those mm-hmm. and I, I think the Final Destination, the idea still has legs. It still has tremendous longevity. There's a lot that you can do with it.
0: Oh my God! And like, look how much it's cemented into our collective imagination. You know, the amount of people I see posting on Twitter of like, "I'm behind a truck with logs." I am mm-hmm. talking to a girl. I have just Met and she was like, Oh, that tanning bed scene really freaks me out. You just had that stupid dream. Yeah, yeah. And you really like, me. So, so it's permeated our collective imagination because mm-hmm. I think, to your point, we are in a risk society. We are still fearful of death. And in many ways, over the last few years, as we still grapple with a pandemic, death feels more tactile than ever. For sure. It's all around us all the time. And it's a secular
1: reaction to a theological problem, Mm. I almost feel like. Yes. So, so yeah, I think it's great. It warrants appreciation to this day. I think it holds up. And uh, yeah, I'll check out the new one for sure. Oh, sure. If you're still
0: alive. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay you can just okay no that was funny because i don't know a dream <sighs> enough about you okay let's just wrap up remind everyone merch is on sale class of 2022 link is in the show notes beautiful design by laura hockstad so excited for it live show in toronto december 7th at the garrison uh tickets are pay what you can everything we make on that is going to sistering links for that in the show notes as well please check that out we hope to see you there but before december oh we've got october baby november but we will reveal
1: Our October episode now, our Halloween edition, we tend to go hard. We tend to go into one of the big horror movies with the big subjects we want to talk about. And I have been dying to talk about this film forever. I can't wait to rewatch it. I can't wait to talk about it with you. Can I say it? Of course. 28 Days Later. Let us all together revisit the glory that pretty much revitalized the zombie subgenre into the modern
0: context with 28 Days Later. That's going to be our episode. I'm excited. I love that movie, and it has been a little while since I've seen it, so... You know, it made a fuss, and people
1: were talking about it, but I see resonance of it to this day, and I still want to talk about it, and perhaps it's because times have been so tough that a post-apocalyptic
0: context and the commodification of people is more relevant than ever. I mean, as that film said, the end is very fucking nigh. Yeah. So, and, and we might bleed in a little conversation. I'll probably use it as an excuse to rewatch 28 weeks later. Oh, fuck yeah. Why? Yeah. So we might, we might bring that in a bit, but, um, I am so excited to tackle that film. Um, I'm so excited to hear your thoughts on it. Cause I know we've talked briefly about it in various iterations, but to actually hear the great Andrea Subisati throw down the gauntlet oh, on fast zombies, fast zombies, uh- uh, biological
1: zombies, as opposed to yeah. We'll, we'll well, save, it, it. save it, save it, save it, Do your homework. Meet us back in October for twenty eight days later. And until the next
0: time, your podcast co host decides oh my god. to fuck. Oh my god! What? Wait, did you see that? What? Did you see that? Just no, me? Andrea, just tell me. What did you see? Uh,
1: never mind. That's probably nothing.
0: Okay. Well, I. Okay. Can you least wrap this up? Because I would like to eat these chips. Okay. Okay.
1: Okay. Okay. Uh, until uh, God. Until you have a premonition
0: that your co host doesn't believe. Office uh, hours are closed. And there is no fucking lame I can't believe. Wait, wait.
1: <coughs> are you okay? <laughs> <coughs> Alex! <coughs> Alex, <coughs> breathe! <coughs>
0: <coughs> <coughs> oh. Office hours are closed. <laughs>